Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode number 184. I want to talk about developing a discipleship counseling culture in your church and how it will not happen without intentionality. So in this podcast, I'm going to share several things that will help you move in that direction. I want to give you a list of ideas that will help you to think through having a counseling slash discipleship ministry in your local church. This will not be an exhaustive list. There are many things that you have to do in order to have this type of worldview in your local church, but this partial list that I'm going to give you, it will serve you immensely in the process of creating a soul care community. If you want to read the things that I'm going to share with you, then go to episode 184. It is titled, Vital Tips for Developing a Counseling Worldview in Your Church. And you can read everything that I'm going to share with you. And I have links here so that you can talk to me on the forum. I want you to be able to get on the forum easily so that we can continue this discussion because, as I said, this is not an exhaustive list. But I do, I do want to put some things out there in uh, no order of priority, but things that you must consider when you think about a counseling-slash-discipleship worldview. I have some other information, links here about our mastermind training. I also have uh, some clips, uh, some video clips from my Introduction to Biblical Counseling class, my 10-part class that I offer to local churches. And so you can get all that information at the show notes, episode 184, Vital Tips for Developing a Counseling Worldview in Your Church. The reason I'm doing this podcast is because I've Talked to pastors over the last three weeks about implementing a counseling worldview in their local churches. They talked about doing this, and I shared with them some ideas. And so I thought, in fact, I told one of them just recently, I'm going to put this in a podcast because I am repeating myself to different people in different contexts. And so I thought it would be a great idea to put the thoughts that I shared with them in one podcast here so that you all can benefit, and it will be archived for anyone that would want to listen to this who is thinking about the implementation of a counseling worldview. Now, there are many angles to this idea. I've already said this, this is not an exhaustive list, and so I just want to speak to a few of them, some things for you to consider. You, you could look at this podcast as a conversation starter. We're just getting the conversation started. And again, if you want to continue talking about it, then come to our forum and we'll be glad to do that. And if you want me to come and do a biblical counseling introduction to biblical counseling conference at your church, I can do that as well. But let me get into it. Episode 184. In 1997, I started a counseling ministry at a 1,200-attendee local church. At this church, there was no pre-existing counseling worldview, and we had no template for what we were doing. Without question, I was a novice counselor. I was a novice trainer. 
I was novice in many ways, and so there were a lot of trials and a lot of errors. And my hope is that our ministry, this current ministry, will be able to come alongside you to help mitigate those mistakes in your church. We are now more than two decades past the genesis of that counseling ministry. And so here's my non-exhaustive list of vital things that made our counseling ministry a success. And by the way, that counseling ministry is flourishing today. It has been going well for 20 plus years. And by the mercy and grace of God, they have helped a lot of people. The first thing is, is the counselor, and this is what I told the elders at uh, that local church, is, is that the counselor is not the first call when it comes to finding help. Now, if you want to instill a worldview at your local church about counseling, then it is imperative that people know that when somebody is in trouble, the counselor is not the guy. You don't want to create a worldview that says, quote, if you need help, go down the hall and turn left. That is where you will find our counselor. No, you don't want to do that. There used to be a day a few decades ago when evangelism had a similar vibe. The church member would be out evangelizing, and it seems like they have someone on the line, and they would tell them, hey, if you want to learn how to become a Christian, I want you to come and talk to our pastor. Both of those things are wrong. And so it is important that whoever is leading the counseling ministry that counseling is not the main thing, but that person is a trainer. I'll speak more to that later, because what you're trying to communicate is a worldview that spreads out all over the church, and everybody has a role to play. And so number one, count the counselor is not the first call when it comes to finding help. Number two, counseling is a subset of discipleship. Discipleship is the historical New Testament word for progressive sanctification, and counseling, if anything, fits up inside discipleship. And so one does not replace the other, but discipleship swallows counseling. Counseling is not the main thing, but a supplemental ministry for those who have problems that need a season of intensive soul care. And so there is a need for setting aside private, intensive soul care for a season, but that is one component part of discipleship. You want to communicate a discipleship worldview, and counseling is a subset of that point. Number three, it is vital that every individual in the church not only knows that they should be doing the work of a counselor, of a discipler. And remember when I use in this ministry, when we use the word counseling, counselor, counsel, that's a synonym for the word discipleship or discipler. And so it is vital that every person in the church not only knows that they should be doing the work of a counselor or a discipler, but they must learn how to care for others well. If you want to communicate this worldview, because here's the thing, if you set up a counseling ministry in a local church and the only thing that you do is counseling and you are not equipping the local church to do the work of discipleship, you will be shut down in a moment. I mean, you can only counsel so many people. 
and you will not be able to accommodate the people who come to you. And so it is imperative that you have this worldview that trains first and counsels second. Point number four, every member has a unique gift mix, which means all of them cannot counsel at a high level. Everybody can't sing perfectly. Everybody's not going to make the major leagues. Everybody is is not going to be on the honor roll at your local school. Everybody has a unique gift mix, but their gift mix doesn't mean that they can do counseling in a formalized setting, in that setting aside intensive formalized context that I was speaking about earlier. They can disciple others, but not expertly necessarily. There will be times when the counseling need of the individual will will transcend the discipler's ability to bring care. Now, this is when you get into counseling second. When the problem that the person has is greater than the discipler's ability to bring soul care, then you do need a well-trained counselor on staff to take care of that. But everybody plays according to their gift mix. Point number five, the lead counselor counsels as a secondary matter, as I have been saying. His primary job is to equip the church body to care for others. If his main task is counseling, he will hinder the church from fully realizing their discipleship abilities. Now, I know I've been redundant on this point, but that's what happens so often that you start a counseling ministry and you have a counselor. And guess what? The church is excited about that because now we have somebody that can help us. And it doesn't click with a lot of church members that, no, you are part of this. And we need to discern what your gifting is, and we need to equip you to the fullness of what your gifting is so that you can do the work alongside us. You don't want to to promote a guy into the counseling office, and that is the extent of it. A bad idea. Number six, the lead counselor should be a man which will release him to teach and train in all contexts and all genders. And so you want a man leading the organization. As far as training, honestly, I would recommend that he get as much academic training as he possibly can in the area of biblical counseling up to and including a master's degree. Now, ideally, it would be wonderful if he had a female doppelganger, a woman who was competent as well to do counseling who could take on the females who come for help. And so the best case scenario is to have a well-trained, equipped man who can counsel intensively, formalize, and has the gift of teaching, training, so that he can equip the entire church to do this. Now, that is the ideal situation. And there is a female on staff or who volunteers for the church who is highly competent in the area of intensive counseling because, point number seven, the lead counselor should not counsel any woman for an ongoing season, but he should prepare her to receive care from a competent lady in the church. Also, he should never disciple a woman alone. He needs a window in his office door. He needs someone sitting near 
any counseling that he may be doing with the opposite sex. When I counseled at that local church, in fact, this is how I counseled historically ever since then, even in my parachurch organization, is I don't count counsel women in an ongoing way. I don't counsel women alone. I keep the door ajar, have a window on the door, have someone either sitting in the office or sitting next door because you just do not want to put yourself in that position. It is unwise. It is foolish. It is problematic. You set yourself up uh, not only to ruin yourself, uh, you set yourself up. If uh, you can hurt the other person, you set yourself up to defame God. You set yourself up to uh, damage the reputation of the church. There are so many minefields there, and I cannot overstate the importance of not counseling women in an ongoing way and not counseling women alone. One of the things that happens in the counseling office is that people think the counselor ha has it together. It surprises people, some people, when they realize that when the counselor sins, when I sin against somebody and somebody finds out about it, and it's like, oh my, he's the counselor. You see, people have a, a poor practical understanding of the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of anthropology. And they believe, even though I think that if they took a Christian exam, they would say that, no, all people are fallen and all people sin, and we continue to sin after we, saved, after we are saved, but they have this expectation that the counselor has it together. And some women that come from dysfunctional marriages can many times create an attachment to this person that she wants to believe has it all together and has the perfect life. You don't want to put yourself in that kind of context. Number eight, as often as you can, it would fall in line with your training worldview to have a small group leader or other leader sitting in on all the counseling so that the leader can provide ongoing care the rest of the week to the counselee Plus, you are positioning the person to take the counselee away from you. Remember your job, counseling second, training first. So in addition to this mixed gender counseling that I just I was talking about, having someone sitting in the office with you is critical. And so many times if I was counseling a woman, I would want a female leader sitting in the counseling session uh, one, for safety's sake for both of us, but also for training's sake so that I could equip this individual in biblical counseling, and so it becomes a twofer. It is a training event, and it's a counseling session, but it's better than that. The counselor or the person that I am equipping can meet with this individual off-site, outside of the office on another day. I can't meet with any counselee multiple times during the week, but if you have someone sitting in, hearing everything that's being said, learning how to counsel and understanding the individual that they are meeting with, and they will have the ability to minimally encourage them along the way and the things that they are learning in counseling. And so as often as you can, it would fall in line with your training worldview to have a, a small group leader, an elder, some other type leader, a ministry leader sitting in on the counseling session so that they can take it and run with it eventually. Number nine, once you wave the counseling flag at your local church, people will come. 
And when they come, it will create issues that you must navigate. I'll share with you three of them. You'll have folks, church folks, your people who will want your help. You'll have non-church people who will come, people who don't go to your church or any other church. And then the third demographic is that you'll have people from other churches that will come for help to see you. And so I want to talk about all three of these demographics. First of all is your church people. And it is imperative to remember this. God has called you to your church, which makes your church folks the priority as, as far as receiving your attention and your care. You don't want to be that pastor who is paid by the church but devotes too much time to his side hustle, to his side ministry. We have a lot of pastors who have parachurch ministries or blogs and things that they're doing on the side, and maybe it folds in well with their local church, and maybe it's not taken away uh, from the training and equipping and counseling and preaching and the things that they are supposed to do with their local church. But I also know that I... I pastored once upon a time, and to pastor well, it consumes virtually all of your time. And so it is important for you to remember that your church people come first. The person who, who devotes too much time to their side ministry lacks understanding, lacks wisdom, lacks integrity, and I don't care how big their burden is. If their burden is that big for their side ministry, then they need to step into that side ministry and let that be their full-time job. But you have a responsibility to take care of your, uh, your people. Your folks pay you, if I can say it that way, to care for them through tithes and offerings. And nothing should hinder that responsibility. And even if they didn't pay you, they come first because God has called you to that body. So always keep your church people first. Number two, non-church people. A local church counseling ministry can become a wide door for the community, including an evangelistic door, meaning folks will come running to you. And so you must have best practices in place to care for them. You want to write out careful policies as to how you think about non-church people that come to you. One of those, as I've already mentioned, they cannot come before the folks that God has called you to bring care. For example, uh, if you do not, if they do not attend, attend a local church, you want to insist that they attend yours during the counseling season because singular counseling events are not enough for change. And I know many people don't have this view because it just quite simply they don't know. They think that they can go to counseling and they can get answers. People or, or, or find resolution to their problems. People come to our forums like that regularly. Well, I can, I can come to the forum. I can ask Rick a question, and, and then my problems resolve. It, it, I almost want to say it never works that way. And so if you have someone who doesn't attend a church in the area, they're not attending your church, but they come to you for counseling, then make it a stipulation that during the counseling you have to attend our church because they need all the means of grace that the church provides. And by the way, if they're not willing to commit to what you ask, you don't want to counsel them anyway. If they're not teachable, I mean, okay, so they don't want to do that. So now you're negotiating with them. Guess what's going to happen next? You're going to, they're going to come to counseling, and you're going to give them things to do, and they will negotiate with you 
as to whether they will do them or not. If God is not granting repentance to them, you want to be careful how you interact with them. And so once you raise the counseling flag at your church, people will come. That will create issues for three different demographics. Folks that attend your church who won't help. Non-church people will come. And then people from other churches. Each pastor will give an account on how he cares for his sheep. That's right out of the Hebrew playbook, chapter 13, verse 17, that they will give an account for how they keep watch over the, the sheep's souls so you want to be careful when it comes to tinkering with another man's sheep. Whenever someone came to me from another church to receive counseling, it was a sober call to be very careful. Now, typically, if a person is coming to you for help from another church, there's a high probability that there's something wrong with that church. If a person goes to somebody else rather than the leader, the pastors of the church or the means of grace that the pastors have established within that church to receive care, there's a high probability that there's something wrong with that church. Now, I realize there can be other reasons, but my point here is you want to tread carefully. We would not counsel a person from another church unless they brought a leader with them. And if they did not want their church to know about their problems, we would ask them to consider why are they attending that church? Because if the sheep does not want the shepherd knowing about their problems, maybe they need to go somewhere else. But that is a bad situation when the sheep go to another church to receive help. They don't want their shepherd to know about the help. There's something wrong there, and so you want to tread carefully. Your goal by having a leader sitting in on the sessions, an elder, a small group leader, sitting in on the counseling sessions is similar to having a small group leader doing the same thing for your people. It's the same worldview and it's the same logic that's behind it. And so you must carefully balance the care of the individual who is coming to you from another church and the responsibility of their church. And one final thing, you don't want to gain a reputation in your community as a sheep stealer. And so you want to walk carefully here. And so these three demographics that will come and I promise you they, they will come when you raise that counseling flag. Your people will want help. They must be envisioned on what that looks like. Non-church people and then other church people. Now I want to talk about what I call get some skin in the game. When counseling non-church or other church people, you have no leverage on them to motivate them to change. Thus you want them to put some skin in the game. Now, here are some ways that you can motivate people to put some... When I say put some skin in the game is that you want to gain commitment from them. The people who want counseling and the people who are committed to the process of counseling, those are wildly different numbers. There's a lot of people that, that want to lose weight, but the numbers of them that, that will actually commit to the six-month, one-year lifestyle changes to lose weight, that's a far different number, and it parallels counseling. Those who have problems and, and they want change versus those who commit to change, well, those who commit to change, that's a small number because change is hard. It is really hard, and so you want them to 
put some commitment in, put some skin in the game. Now, here's some of the ways that you can do that. For example, your church folks need to understand the point of the buddy system. They need to understand the point of having somebody sitting in on the counseling session. Non-church people need to demonstrate a, a, a commitment for the process of change. And two ways that you can do that, you can give them homework to do, and you can mandate that they attend your church for the season of counseling. It is imperative that you do this because if they are not going to commit to the process, you need to be spending your time doing something else. Because here's the deal. You'll never run out of people to help. You won't. And Jesus, Jesus had this filter. He never ran out of people who loved him and wanted to follow him. So he had to create a, a filter. If any man come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross they had to put some skin in the game, and that filtered a lot of people out, and you want to use a similar wisdom. You don't have to be mean about it. You don't have to be uncaring. You don't have to lack compassion, but you also don't want to be so wussified and so soft, or you have this, what people call a gift of mercy, but really it's not a gift of mercy. You just struggle with fear of man, and you can't turn people away. You and honestly, you're enabling them and you're not helping them ultimately because you're not requiring them to begin to start exercising discipline in the change process. And so for church folks, you have a buddy system. Hey, I want, I'm want i going to have someone sitting in and the reason for this is because, and you begin to explain that to them. And if they really won't change, well, they'll be for that because they want to change and then you have them do homework, non-church people, you have them come to your church. Other church members need to understand your attention about shepherding other pastors' sheep. They need to know that receiving care from their church is imperative, and therefore bringing a leader from their church will help in that process. One of the things that you don't want to do is to become their life coach. And so every three months or every six months, they come to you for help, and then they go back to their church. What have you accomplished? Well, you have a side hustle. You have another ministry that you are conducting now because you're this person's life coach, but you haven't created a worldview or a vision for this other local church. You're not helping them at all. You're enabling this person who, who needs to needs to come to terms with and commit to the vision that you're trying to communicate. And then the last point that I want to make is about envisioning your church. This is episode 184. I've given you some vital tips for developing a counseling ministry worldview at your church. As you know, as you can sense now, this is not an exhaustive list, but it is a partial list to get the conversation going and I would love to chat with you about this if you want to do something like this. Again, we did this uh, more than two decades ago at a 1,200-member church where I live. And so this is, I'll share with you what we did, and you can actually follow this template, and it has been proven. You want to communicate your vision to the church. One of the best ways to do that is to have a week-long or have you divided up, mega training event where someone leads an Introduction to Biblical Counseling conference. And that can be over two weekends. It can be a week long, however you, again, however, you, however way you want to divide that up. And you want as many people from your church in attendance. Now, when that conference is done, you want to pass out cards asking those who want more in-depth training to come to additional equipping 
which could last 12 weeks. And part of that training, what you're trying to do is to identify a core group of leaders who appear to have a gift mix to do formalized counseling at your local church. And there's a way of assessing an individual to see if they have the proper gift mix to do that kind of high-end formalized counseling. After you identify this group, uh, you may have a counseling team for you to equip. Now, when I did this many years ago at our local church, we had 210 to 220 folks to attend the larger Introduction to Biblical Counseling Conference. We passed out cards at the end of that conference, and there were a little over 50 people who said, I would like some additional training. And so we did that for 12 weeks or so, about three months. And then out of that group, the attrition rate kicks in. But there were maybe 10 people, something like that, who really wanted more. They believed that that God was stirring them up for this kind of ministry. And there were about 10 people who said, I, I want to get biblical counseling equipping. And so we did the mega church for 200 and the mega conference for 200 plus people. Out of that came 50 or so people who wanted additional training. And out of that came 10 or so people who wanted to commit to long-term, year-in, year-out biblical counseling, and that was the beginning of our counseling ministry in the local church. I hope I've stirred up some questions with some of you, especially you pastors. If you want to talk about me doing an introduction to biblical counseling uh, conference at your church, or if you have other questions, I want you to write me and let me know. I have forum links here where you can continue the conversation if you wish. Go on our free community forums, or if you are a supporting member, go to our private forums. Episode 184, Vital Tips for Developing a Counseling Worldview in Your Church. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Check out these show notes, and I hope you have a great week. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.